The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How are you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Thursday evening. It is now 11.01. I'm here to engage with all of you. It's going to be a great conversation. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. We're going to have a great conversation tonight, just like we always do. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. So welcome. So glad to have you here. Let's jump into it. American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, it's just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything will be all right, just everything will put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We've got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you with us. So glad to have you here. For some reason, my computer is acting weird, but that's okay. I think it's back to acting normal. We always seem to manage. Yes, we do. Um, but welcome, everybody. Um, so tonight, uh, the way we're going to do things, just like we always do, is I'm going to give my opening remarks. My opening remarks will be followed by a roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. I call you out as I see you. Um, and then I answer your super chat questions for the remainder of the show. That's how this works. The second half of the show is all you. It's all super chats. So if you send me good super chats, I will answer the second half of the show and do a great job. Um, so there you go. Uh, you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, uh, by all means, just super chat that question to me and I will make a point of doing that. Um, one thing that I would really appreciate is if you would help bring people on board, um, help bring people here, you know, YouTube for whatever reason, I think they may be messing with the notifications a little bit. Um, not as many people get the notifications. I've been getting people complaining that they didn't get the notifications. So uh, if you uh, can post this around Facebook, uh, if you can post this around Twitter, you can post this in Facebook chat groups, if you can post this, uh, you know, post this on Reddit, uh, post this in discussion groups, that would be awesome. That would be awesome because I would really like there to be a good crowd here to engage with. You all are here and I'm really glad to have you and we hope we can spread it around. So post this around, uh, drag people in, get people to be part of the community here and engage with what we have to say. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and be sure to hit the notifications bell. Tonight, folks, I wanted to actually talk about something that crosses my mind every so often. And it's one of the most important works of English literature, most widely studied works of English literature. Uh, it's called Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. It's a play written by William Shakespeare. 
and uh, it speaks to an aspect of the human condition that I think is worth highlighting. Um, so if you haven't read or watched a movie or a play version of Hamlet, you know, it was originally a Shakespeare play and then it, you know, people studied it as a work of literature and, and for the words. And, you know, I think Mel Gibson made a movie of it and, uh, you know, BBC has done many, many different versions of it. There was a very, very popular 1930s black and white, uh, you know, film version of it. Uh, you know, it's considered for, for centuries, one of the most important, Works of English Literature, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark by William Shakespeare. The story of the play goes like this. Uh, there is a young prince, uh, and he is very saddened at the loss of his father. His father has died, and he is grieving the loss of his father. He believes his father died of natural causes in his sleep. And then one day, uh, he gets visited by a ghost. And the ghost of his father, his father's deceased spirit, gives him some important information that his death was not caused by natural causes, that rather his brother, his younger brother, the uncle of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, uh, has poisoned him, poured poison into his ear and killed him. And Hamlet is informed of the fact that his, his uncle, who's now the king, who now married his mother, uh, has taken power not because of his father dying of natural causes, but rather due to the fact that his father was assassinated. And then his father's ghost tells him, you really have no choice. You need to go and reclaim the throne for yourself. You need to oust my younger brother who murdered me and take the crown that is rightfully yours. And Hamlet hears this information and it's just too much for him to process. And so he spends the remainder of the play trying his hardest for it not to be true. And that is really the essence of the play. He's, he's going around trying his hardest for it not to be true. Uh, he, you know, he, at one point he stages this very elaborate play depicting events like the assassination of his father, hoping that it will trigger an emotional response from the king that'll prove the king actually did it. Um, he says, the play is the thing that shall affect the conscience of the king. And he, he stages this elaborate play he comes up with one way after another. How can I possibly not do what I'm meant to do? He falls into this great depression. He has many, many depressed soliloquies where he's talking about what does life all mean? He says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth. This goodly frame, the earth seems to me, but a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air look you. This brave or hanging firmament, the majestical roof, fretted with golden fire, seems to me nothing but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. And he slips into this depression. He's, he, he realizes, to quote the play, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. He realizes a truth that he cannot handle, a truth that just seems so horrific, that his father, who he loved, was murdered, 
by his uncle and that his his uncle is the stealer of the throne the you know the stole the throne the false king Kafka and as a result of that he has no choice it is his obligation to kill his uncle and claim the throne for himself but he just can't bring himself to do it and he just doesn't want it to be true and he just doesn't want it to be the reality he just doesn't want it to be the reality he becomes more and more depressed more and more hopeless more and more miserable until ultimately uh his family uh they they can't stand his insanity uh the woman he's engaged to be married ends up committing suicide uh, because he accidentally kills her father by stabbing through a curtain. And long story short, they invite him to a sword fight. They invite him to a sword fight, and they're going to kill him in the sword fight and make it look like an accident. But he also, uh, you know, seizes the moment, and everybody dies, and it's a big tragedy. And that is... Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, and it really sticks with people. And the reason it sticks with people is because it's the situation that a lot of people get into when they are faced with a truth that is too big for them to handle, a truth that is too, too dramatic for them to handle. They don't know how to face it. They don't know how to face it. And it leads them into a situation where they just don't know what to do. They can't bring themselves to just stomach and acknowledge the truth. And it destroys them. And they try for this truth not to be true. They try one way for the truth not to be true. They try another way for the truth not to be true. And for whatever reason, it's reality. They can't escape reality. And they try to ignore it. And they try to invent elaborate ceremonies, uh, elaborate, uh, elaborate circumstances through which it can be disproven. They try to reassure themselves that it just isn't the case. But this reality that they're facing just weighs down upon them so much that ultimately they can't face it and it destroys them. And that's a reality that we often see, right? Um, this is actually. The soliloquy in Hamlet that's probably the most famous. I'm going to play you a video of it. I when Hamlet is contemplating suicide, he's he's engaging in suicidal ideation, and this is what he says: "You're not to be that. That that is the question. Whether it is nobler nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep." To sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep... That sleep of death what dreams may come. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us... There's the respect... That makes calamity of so long life. The pang of despised love, the law's delay, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy take. Who would hurdles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death the, the undiscovered, undiscovered country, country, from whose bourne no traveller returns, 
puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have, than fly to others that we know not of. Be all my sins. Be all my sins. Be all my sins. Be all my sins remembered. Yeah, it's particularly dark stuff. It's particularly sad stuff. Um, but it points to a circumstance that I think many of us have been in. And it's a circumstance that if you're a socialist in the United States, you deal with frequently. Because a lot of what we say is too much for people to handle. A lot of our message is something that a lot of people just can't handle. We're telling them that everyone... Right. Sorry, we lost audio there for a second. Everyone that they've believed and been raised their whole life to believe was good. The U.S. government, the U.S. system, the mainstream media is bad. Meanwhile, everyone that they've been raised to believe is evil. Like Stalin, like Mao. You know, like Xi Jinping in China, like Fidel Castro in Cuba. But those folks are actually on the right side of history. And that is a huge, huge revelation that a lot of people are going to cower in the face of. And they will not be able to face it. And if you come at them with that, they just crumple. Right, And they try to, they do everything they possibly can to not hear you. They do everything they possibly can to not accept what you're telling them because it just flies in the face too much of their reality. And this knowledge is just something they cannot handle. And if you give them this knowledge, uh, it, it just destroys them. And this is a problem that we have as a movement. How do you go to people? And get them to understand that the way they've been taught to see the world is topsy-turvy. Well, first of all, you don't. I mean, those of us who understand historical and dialectical materialism, we don't. It's the conditions that lead people to start to reach that conclusion. And if you go, for example, to working class communities around the country, there's a very strong feeling that the U.S. government is the enemy. There's a very strong feeling that you can't trust mainstream media. There's a very strong feeling that people around the world might be good. At the time that Gaddafi was killed, I was at Occupy Wall Street, and I was surprised that while the professional leftists, these middle-class hipster types, they were celebrating the death of Gaddafi, it was the middle class and often more libertarian younger people from the Midwest, like myself, that seemed to sympathize with Gaddafi. Because the conditions in the states that they are living in have deteriorated so much. Because the realities that they are facing have deteriorated so much that they are ready to think that the U.S. government is their enemy. They're ready to think that someone who's opposing the U.S. government in Africa who wanted to create an independent African currency might be a good guy. 
And it's the material conditions. If you go to the black community in the United States, African-Americans have had these kind of sentiments for a very long time. Among African-American folks in the United States, there has long been sympathy with revolutionary movements against U.S. imperialism around the world. Why? Because of what black people have faced in the United States with lynching, with Jim Crow segregation, with discrimination, etc., has led them to the conclusion that the American government is their enemy. And there's a long history of black nationalist intellectuals becoming sympathetic with the Bolsheviks, with Marxism. Uh, there's a long history of that. It goes back to Marcus Garvey. Uh, you talk about the 1930s. I mean, there's a long history of these kind of sentiments taking deep root among the black community. And now among parts of the United States that are becoming more economically depressed, uh, among low-income white workers, there's an increasing feeling about this as well. All right. There's an increasing feeling about that as well. And that if you just, if it was a matter of things being all well and good, and you just walked up to people and got them and forced them with their own eyes to see for themselves that U.S. imperialism is the main enemy of humanity, that the forces of resistance to U.S. imperialism are in reality good, uh, they probably would just do everything they possibly could not to hear you. And I mean, I, I, you all experience this. If you engage with your friends and family members about communism and about socialism, you're going to encounter this. There's going to be people who just do everything they possibly could everything they possibly can, you just can't possibly be right. You just can't possibly be right. I know that communism is bad. I know it. I know it. Okay, maybe the USA did this. Okay, maybe the USA did that. Okay, maybe this. But, but communism has to be bad. It just, just has to be bad. And it's really infuriating when people do it. It's really, really infuriating when people act that way. Because they have, they just have to, for whatever reason, they just have to keep believing that communism is the enemy. They just have to keep believing that the USA is on the right side by arming Ukrainian Nazis to, you know, to, to terrorize the people of the eastern regions and bomb and shell them for eight years. They have to believe, they just have to believe that, that, uh, that, that Iran is bad. They have to believe that you know, the United States and U.S. imperialism and Wall Street are somehow the good guys in the world. They just have to believe it. Because the reality of what you're showing them is just too big for them to face. And it's, it's not that they aren't convinced by your facts. Your facts are pretty irrefutable. If you show what the war in Ukraine is really about, you show that it's not just Putin had a bad day and decided to invade Ukraine. You show that it's actually a war provoked by the United States since the 2014 coup. You show that to people. If you show them the actual facts that mainstream media never bothers to discuss, you show them that no, Ukraine hasn't been a peaceful country until recently. No, there's been killing in Ukraine for eight years. You show them these things. And you show them, you show them that the USA arms the brutal autocracy of Saudi Arabia as it rains death and destruction on the people of Yemen. You show them that the United States is actively working to create a food crisis in Venezuela and destabilize Venezuela. 
You show them the work, the great work the Sandinistas have done to raise up living conditions. You show them how Libya had the highest life expectancy on the African continent when socialism was in power and how the United States tore that down with their ugly war. You show them these things and all the facts line up. The, all the facts are there, but they just can't hear you. They just can't hear you. No, it just has to be. There just has to be some way, some way that the anti-imperialists have to be worse. They have to be bad. There just has to be some way. There just has to be some way that CNN is right. I can't believe you that CNN is the lying to me. It just is too much for me to comprehend that CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all of them are lying. And the people that I've been taught to believe are evil are actually good. I just can't believe that, that, that this might be the case, that Putin might be, might be justified in taking action to protect the peoples of the eastern regions. I, people just can't believe this. I mean, it's just too much for them to swallow. It's just too much for them to swallow. And that's, that's what the play Hamlet is about and how there are realities that we all hide from. And really, it's material conditions. People become open to hearing these things when there is a material reality. It is the black community has been open to hearing these things, at least a large section of it, for quite some time. The, uh, the low-income white workers are suddenly now being open to hearing these things after decades of deindustrialization. And it's expressing itself in terms of libertarianism, and that's a problem. But they're starting to become anti-imperialist. They're starting to be, if you look at what Tucker Carlson is saying, it's very clear that among you know, low-income white workers across America, there is a sentiment that perhaps Russia isn't so bad. Uh, perhaps uh, perhaps you know, our mainstream media is lying to us about these things. Perhaps we should be skeptical. And it's material conditions that ultimately break the, these things down. Communists on our own, you can work on somebody, but communists on our own, we're... We can't do it all. It's material conditions that, that lay the basis for breaking these things down. And there may be individuals, and it may be that you know there's somebody who their material conditions doesn't lead them to this conclusion, but they just have faced you know, the realities of life. They've, they've learned. They, they think critically. And there may be somebody who, for whatever reason, um, whoever, whatever reason, you know, they've, they've been able to think on their own, but that kind of person is going to be rare. But it's important to talk about this Hamlet condition. It's very important to talk about it. Because unfortunately, those of us who believe in Marxism and socialism, we are not immune from these kinds of problems. We're not immune from these kinds of problems. We are not immune from these kinds of problems. Right? There are many fields of life in which people can manifest this kind of I don't know what you want to call it, Hamlet syndrome, where they just won't allow themselves to acknowledge what's true. They try in every conceivable way to not come to terms with what is true. We all do it. We're all in denial in some aspect of life. And for me, that denial came in the form of the political group I was in. And it was overcoming that denial that led me to launch the Center for Political Innovation and to launch, uh, you know, the project that we're working on and to become the, you know, the spearhead pushing forward what they now call patriotic socialism. 
when I did it, I did it all by myself. But it was because I came to terms with a reality. I was in the workers' world party for many years. And if you want to talk about a group that, even though their worldview was anti-imperialist, even though they were sympathetic to North Korea and China and Cuba, and, and when it came to Ukraine in 2014, they opposed the coup. And even though this was a group that, you know, is generally anti-imperialist, if you want to talk about a group that was synthetic left, uh, that was this group. Uh, you know, I mean, the group was constantly having internal fights where people who disagreed got shut down by being called racist, sexist, or homophobic. Um, they were all obsessed with the movement. What is the movement doing? They were all obsessed with the movement, the movement. And, you know, it was how can we become leaders of the movement? And I was part of Occupy Wall Street, which was a big mobilization. And I saw with my own eyes that they were not going to be able to take over Occupy Wall Street. There was no way that they were going to become the leaders of Occupy Wall Street. What we needed to do was go to Occupy Wall Street and find the people there that were recruitable and win them to communism. And I did that to some degree or other. There was somebody who became my roommate and eventually went to Cuba and came back from Cuba, you know, very fired up about communism, but then went home to their family in Florida and then decided they were going back to Cuba the next year. And this time they were going to go to Cuba and they were going to really open their eyes. And they came back from Cuba the second year, even more pro-communist than they were before. There was somebody that was more or less a liberal when I first met them, anti-racist liberal, but I got them to stay with me and, and I got them to Cuba and they became a communist. And this person's still a communist. They're active in different ways than I am. You know, and I did that. Uh, there were other people that were part of the Occupy Wall Street milieu that I was able to work on. But what frustrated me the most was that there, there was no interest on the part of the party to go to Occupy Wall Street and engage with these people. You know, the idea we're going to go down to Occupy Wall Street, we're going to meet these young people, these young people from different parts of the country who come to New York City to protest the financial crisis. We're going to win them to communism. And I was, I was doing that. I was there every day selling communist newspapers and engaging with people. I was arrested at Occupy Wall Street protests. I, I was doing that. Um, but... You know, uh, they weren't doing that. And the reason they weren't doing that, I realized, was after, after the few times I got them to come with me, a couple times I got them to come with me and set up a literature table, these people couldn't engage with these people. They didn't know what to say. People would come up and they'd say, Communi you know, Stalin killed 100 gajillion million people, and they'd go, well, the USA does bad stuff. I mean, they didn't have an answer. They weren't able to engage with people and talk to people about things about like the Soviet Union, things like China. They weren't able to have those conversations and they didn't have the confidence, right? These were people who, when they were in their 20s or when they were high school age, protesting was a very hip and cool thing to do. It was all the popular rock bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were promoting anti-war protests. And so they really enjoyed going to protests and the Workers' World Party was a group in New York City that you know, led and organized a lot of protests and they joined it. And the ideology was, eh, they didn't really care that much about it, but it was just this group that organized protests and they wanted to be part of the movement. They wanted to be protesters. And back then, in that point, at that time, it made sense 
It made sense that, you know, if you went to a black liberation protest in the 70s, 80s, even up into the 90s, there's a good chance that most of the people there would be more or less sympathetic toward Cuba or toward, uh, you know, you know, revolutionary movements in Africa. You know, th there was a time where if you went to a, an anti-war protest or an anti-war rally, more or less, it was most, more, more likely that most of the people there would have somewhat of a sympathetic view to the Soviet Union or, or to communism. Uh, there was a feeling that if you went to, you know, if you went to what the quote-unquote movement was doing, if you went to LGBT rights rallies even in the 80s, that, that that was a place where those who believed in communism could maneuver their way to the top. And that was their entire strategy. They wanted to lead the movement, take over the movement. That was their strategy. You know, there'd been this big political upsurge, 1968, 69, 70, 71, 72, and it kind of died down after that. And so their strategy was basically within the movement, within leftism, we can maneuver and push our full-on tanky anti-imperialist politics to the front. If we set up the stage, if we get the permit, we can be king of the protest cage. And even though everyone at the protest, at the anti-war protest or the black liberation protest or the you know, labor union protest, even though they might not agree with us, we'll be in leadership and they'll have to listen to our speeches and we can set the political tone for the movement. That was their strategy. How can we lead the movement and set the political tone for the movement? But the whole time that this group existed from you know, 1959, you know, there was, a, for the first 10 years of this group's existence, there was like an upsurge from, you know, the late 50s up into the 60s, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, by, by about the mid-70s, what you can call the movement started to decline, and it was getting smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and, you know, there was the protests against the Iraq War, and the protests against the Iraq War we're probably the last hurrah of what you can call the movement, right? The remnants of the 1960s left, right? At the time that the USA invaded Iraq, right? 2003, the USA invaded Iraq. There was a protest movement that started about a year before. You had the Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, that was started by the Workers' World Party. The leaders of it split and formed the Party of Socialism and Liberation. You had United for Peace and Justice, which was the bigger coalition that included Democrats, that was led by people from the Communist Party, uh, like Judith LeBlanc. And they organized very big anti-war protests in Washington, D.C. that had like 100,000, sometimes 200,000 people at them. So they organized big anti-war protests in Washington, D.C. And the communists were at the center of it, right? The, the, you know, United for Peace and Justice, you had Communist Party USA and D DSA kind of people were at the center of it. The Answer Coalition, you had Workers' World Party people or what later became the Answer Coalition people at the center of it. And you would go to those rallies. And I did go to those rallies. I was a teenager and I went to the, especially as I, you know, graduated high school in like 2006. And, you know, I was going to these protests. You'd go to these protests and, you know, I mean, there were libertarians who would show up and have literature tables, and there were Alex Jones kind of people, the LaRouche kind of people would be there. But for the most part, it was a communist thing. The communists were running the show. They were setting the tone. And it was which communist group was setting the tone. If it was the United for Peace and Justice, it would be, you know, the Answer Coalition, you know, or if it was United for Peace and Justice, it would be CPUSA and DSA that were setting the show. And they would 
put the communism on the background. So Democrats, members of Congress, like Dennis Kucinich or Barbara Boxer would get on the stage and speak. If it was the answer coalition, you don't have any members of Congress there, except for maybe like um, Cynthia McKinney. But from the podium, you're going to hear not just about Iraq, you're going to hear about Palestine, you're going to hear about, about the Philippines, you're going to hear about Venezuela, etc. Right? And that was kind of how these things were done. And then the Revolutionary Communist Party, the RCP, the Bobovakian people, they started what was called Not In Our Name. And they were promoting, you know, they had like the earth, uh, the image of the earth, like flags with the earth on it. And they would have rallies and they would get artists and writers like uh, the guy from Rage Against the Machine. What was his name? Tom Morello. They'd get Tom Morello to play at their event. And they'd get, you know, what was his name? Uh, the, 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 the actor, uh, I can't even remember, Michael Rappaport, the actor to come speak at their event. And, you know, it was, it was, it was the remnants of the 1960s political left that were in charge of this entity that you can call the movement. People who went to protests, uh, people who went to protests against the Vietnam War and got into lefty politics as a result of that period of time. And there were a couple organizations, the World, you know, the, the, the Answer Coalition, the United for Peace and Justice, not in our name. These groups were kind of, kind of more or less the stage managers of that. And that movement ended when Barack Obama got elected. And many people have observed this. The anti-war movement under Bush, these, those protests were pretty big. You know, they'd have 100,000 people would come to D.C. to march against the war in Iraq. They'd have, you know, you know, they'd have, um, you know, they'd have big protests and people, you know, civil disobediences where people would get arrested, etc. But then, you know, Barack Obama got elected. And it was all over. I believe right after the election, like I think like right after Obama took office, there was like a United for Peace and Justice parade that happened in New York City, 2009, and then it was all over. And at that point, the protests became really small, really, really small, you know. Now, the Palestine protesters, they could get people out into the streets, but overall, Things were just getting pretty small. But I don't know if people remember that when Barack Obama was running for president, a case went viral. There was a pretty ugly case of racism uh, that took place. Uh, the Gina Six. It was in a small town in Louisiana called Gina. It's spelled like Jenna, but it's Gina. And there was like an incident where a group of white kids and a group of black kids got into a fight and the black kids all got expelled and the white kids got nothing uh and it became a national a national event right everyone was talking about the genus six and it was the day everyone was supposed to wear black for the genus six and facebook was just getting started then and twitter was just getting started then and the genus six became kind of a national case and it was social media that was promoting it was obama a marketing tool that's interesting not sure I would put it that way, but we'll see. And, and it was a case of some pretty ugly racism in this southern town. Um, and it was pretty clear that the genus six, though, this is, you know, how many 
you know, how many towns across the country do you have a racist incident like that? I mean, the town I grew up in, there was something about the prom queen back in the 70s people were still talking about. And, you know, I mean, but they took a case in a very, very small town in a rural, in the rural South, and they made it go viral. And it was really, this came from the top. Barack Obama, the Democratic Party, and the social media giants, they built a mobilization. That's very different, very, very, very different than the anti-Vietnam War protests of the 60s. Very, very different than the, the protest movements you know, against uh, Jim Crow segregation. Um, very, very, very different. You know, this was from the top. Barack Obama said, you know, people of color are a big part of this country and they're being treated unfairly in many ways. So I'm going to, I'm going to highlight the suffering of these people and, and Gina. I'm going to make this a national case, right? There we go. I'm going to make it a national case. And, you know, mainstream media outlets talked about the Gina Six. And Rachel Maddow was on TV talking about it. And suddenly, this was a mobilization that came from the top. Came from the top. That was different. That was very different. That was very, very, very different. Now, we know the U.S. economy crashed. Barack Obama got elected. And at that point, you know, going into the Obama presidency, you had the Tea Party. And the Tea Party was Republicans, and it came from the top as well. It was Fox News. They were protesting Obama. They were calling him a communist. The Tea Party was right-wing, and it was, you know, a lot of right-wingers and, you know, racists and, you know, signs with racist defensive stuff on them. It was promoted by Fox News. The idea was Obama's a communist. He's going to ruin the free market. He's going to destroy the American dream, blah, 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 blah. And so that was happening. So Fox News was promoting the Tea Party. And MSNBC was promoting the Gina 6 and other cases. Now, when I first came to New York City, I came to New York City in, you know, the last months of 2010. Last month, it was December of 2010, I moved to this city. And when I came here, I, I think the first day I came to this city, I thought I was coming here for a month. It's a pretty wild story. I was, I had, I had stopped going to college. I was not in college. And I had been working at gas stations and I'd been selling my blood plasma and I had not been eating very well. And, you know, my family had more or less told me you're on your own. Stop doing this communist stuff. And I was not in a good place in my life. And I had long hair and a scraggly beard and, you know, and um, I was part of the Workers World Party and I'd been involved in some important anti-police brutality struggles in Cleveland um, but I was not doing very well economically and I was struggling and the, the workers world party people, you know, they wanted me to come to New York and help them, you know, design some pamphlets that they wanted to publish, which they never did, which is a whole nother story, you know? So I came on, on a Greyhound bus and I remember when I got to New York city, uh, there had just been a huge snowstorm. There had just been a huge snowstorm in New York city and, um, the, you know, the city's sanitation department had not been called up. And uh, it had caused a lot of problems. So I remember as soon as I got off the bus, I walked from where the bus was to the, pro the headquarters of the MTA, the New York City uh, Manhattan Transit Authority, where there's a crowd of people chanting, Mayor Bloomberg, you should know, we want you to shovel snow. 
was like 10 people. It was a small protest, you know, demanding that they hire the unemployed to shovel snow. Um, it was pretty neat. But, but I came to New York City, and again, the remnants of the movement were still there. The Spartacist League, the International Socialist Organization, the Workers' World Party, the Revolutionary Communist Party, they were there. And they were small. And I remember that summer, that summer of 2011, you know, the, the Egyptian revolution had happened, the Arab Spring was happening, there was some labor activism that was happening in Wisconsin. Uh, in Wisconsin, you had, you know, this, this uprising, you know, labor unions were mobilizing against the, um, the you know, the right to work anti-union legislation. But then, you know, that summer, all the leftists, all the, the communists, the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, and Socialist Alternative, and the Workers' World Party, and some anarchist groups, they had a protest that I was part of called Bloombergville. And it was a small demonstration to protest. That, it was like an occupation. We picked a street corner in Manhattan. We set up tents. And we occupied this street corner for a couple weeks. And I was working at an insurance company. I'd go there after work. I came there on the weekends. And it was just this, you know, 24-hour tent encampment uh, protesting Mayor Bloomberg's budget against teacher layoffs, against closing of libraries and fire stations, etc. It was against austerity. Um, and it was small. And I guess the last day of it was very, very exciting because the last day the teachers' unions came out and brought a lot of high school kids with them. And between the high school kids and the teachers unions and the labor you know, unions, a lot of the unions brought their people out and the communist groups, things got pretty rowdy the last day of Bloombergville. I think there were a few people that got arrested that day. But even that, I got barely any news coverage. Uh, Democracy Now! was the only, the only news station that covered it. It didn't. It, it was just, you know... It was a big deal to us because it was action in the street, um, and it was a big deal to us. We had a lot of ideological communist discussions at, at the place, um, you know, and we, uh, you know, we sold a lot of newspapers, and there was some rowdy, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing and pulling with the NYPD and people in the streets yelling after the police and, you know, stuff like that, and some people, I think they occupied a bank lobby and got dragged out, and it was exciting, but it wasn't you know, I mean, nothing, it was kind of ignored by mainstream media. And most people in the New York City probably had no idea that it even happened. Uh, local news didn't cover it. It was just a kind of a thing we did. But at the end of Occupy Wall Street, or at the end of Bloombergville, all of a sudden, in the media, before it had ever happened, people were talking about how there's been a call to occupy Wall Street. And New York City Mayor Bloomberg came out and gave a statement. I understand there are some people planning to occupy Wall Street. Well, as long as they follow the law, their free speech right. No one had ever heard of this. But immediately, MSNBC, CNN, Mayor Bloomberg, NPR are talking about there is planning to be some kind of occupation of Wall Street. Mainstream media was already plugging it. From the beginning, there's going to be an occupation of Wall Street. People are going on September 17th to occupy Wall Street. And it was a lot like, it was a lot like the Gina 6. It came from the top. Came from the top. And I went to the planning meetings of Occupy Wall Street and I participated. And I was a very, you know, I was a, a participant. 
But it was very clear that it came from the top. It came from the top. And, you know, when I arrived, uh, you know, in the, in, in, you know, lower Manhattan at the, you know, I think they call it Bowling Green Plaza, where I arrived on September 17th, I got there. There were a whole bunch of college kids who'd been bussed in from Oberlin College in Ohio. And they'd, they'd come on buses the night before. And, and, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty clear that this came from the top. And Occupy Wall Street, the way it started, it was very much the Democrats made a decision. They decided that the Tea Party was kicking them around too much. They decided that the Republicans, that, you know, they had too much power. You had, um, I think it was what, what uh, Warren Buffett was saying that, you know, it's kind of ridiculous that his secretary paid a higher rate of taxes than he did. And there was this feeling that, yeah, we need to get some people out in the streets to say something lefty against those Wall Street guys, against those greedy corporations. We'll have some populism out in the street. We are the 99% to steal the thunder of the Tea Party and push back against the Republicans. And they did it. And I was part of it. But we were never going to be able to take over Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street, it was, you know, there were some parts of Occupy Wall Street that were very controlled by nonprofits and foundations. I used to talk about the beautiful occupiers, these people that were managed to always get the interviews on mainstream TV and, you know, we're staying, some of them were even, it was revealed staying in luxury hotels, you know, near, near the place. And they were the, you know, there were these people that were being paid to be there. And if you ask them, where were you before Occupy Wall Street? They're like, well, I was fighting AIDS in Africa. And then I was, you know, running the world food program in, in the Philippines. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, these are people that are big, big, a big part of what you call the NGO socialists, right? The NGO apparatus. These are, these are people that, you know, were very, very heavily involved in the global apparatus of Revolution Incorporated, the NGOs, right? Um, and those people, those people from the top, you know, they were involved. And he had those folks. But then there were just a lot of people who just showed up, you know, like me, uh, you know. And then on top of that, you had a lot of people who just showed up who weren't political. There were a lot of people who showed up who were just there to use drugs, you know. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, kind of um, lumpen young people. You know, they talk about declassed elements, people that are just kind of, you know, people that ride the railroads around and steal. And, you know, there were, I mean, especially after Occupy Wall Street had been there for a month or two, there were a lot of the people that showed up that, you know, are the kind of folks that, you know, they just, they, they could get free food there and they could use drugs there. And, you know, it just kind of became a hangout for various crusty, you know, people talking about crust punks or crusties or, you know, this kind of weird declassed element. But the thing was, the, the communist group I was in, they had this illusion that somehow they were going to take over the Occupy Wall Street movement. They were going to get the stage. They were going to get the permit. And somehow they were going to become the leaders of the Occupy Wall Street movement. They weren't going to be able to do that. That was never going to happen. It came from the top. It came from the top. And what we needed to be doing was going there and winning these people to communism. But the, the organizers of the group, they couldn't do that. They couldn't engage with these people. When people said anti-communist stuff, they didn't have an answer to them. You know, Instead, they just knew how to be the stage managers of rallies. And increasingly, increasingly, these folks, uh, they didn't even... Um, 
I mean, it was it was kind of horrifying. They didn't even really, you know, understand their own ideology. You know, I, I was trying to say things like tax the rich is not socialism. And I pointed out that socialism is not progressive taxation. And there were people in the group that didn't agree with me about that. They're like, well, you know, socialism is money for jobs, not war. So wouldn't that mean we, we, we tax the rich for that money? Like, like just basic Marxism, workers control the means of production. They didn't understand this stuff. They were just protesters. They were just 1960s burnouts who, you know, and they didn't understand it. There was a cr like an inner core of people who kind of understood it, but couldn't explain it very well. And I was in this organization and I was realizing that we had a problem. Houston, we have a big problem. Houston, we have a really, really big problem. The day that Gaddafi died, October 20th, 2011, was a very important day for me because I was in the park and I realized the leftists were celebrating the death of Gaddafi. And even my group that was supposed to be kind of pro-Libyan, you know, they didn't really support Gaddafi. They kept insisting he was a bourgeois nationalist. They wouldn't print articles I wrote supporting the green militias of Libya. Um, you know, meanwhile, um, meanwhile, it was the young people from Ohio. It was the young African-American folks, black revolutionaries that were into black nationalism, and they were supporting Gaddafi. That made me think that something's off. And then for the next few years, I remained in the Workers' World Party. The Workers' World Party was my life. And I just kept being confronted with this reality that I couldn't face, that this group doesn't have a future. This organization is never going to take power because this organization is movementist. They don't believe in communism. They believe in building the movement. And they, they don't understand that we need to get to the broad masses of people with communism. And I would see the Jehovah's Witnesses in the subway. And I would see, you know, the, the, you know, the Mormons knocking on my door. And I would say, why in the world are we not out there winning people to communism? And instead, we were just trying to do whatever was trendy. When Trayvon Martin was killed and George Zimmerman, you know, that case, again, it came from the top. Right. The Obama administration, the mainstream media decided we're going to mobilize around that. And it, I mean, you know, go over the facts of the case. I think that Trayvon Martin did not deserve to die. And I, I do believe that, that they were right to protest uh, the verdict, et cetera. But that came from the top. That came from the top. That was directed from the top. And the idea that that, you know, that some Marxist Leninist group was going to be able to become the stage managers of the Trayvon Martin movement was a joke. It was just an utter joke. You should go to those protests and win people to communism. And, you know, Baltimore, there was an uprising in Baltimore. And in many places, I saw that the organization I was part of had this illusion that they were going, that they were going to somehow be the leaders of the movement and that first of all the entity what you can call the movement of today is very 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 different than the movement of the 1960s and 70s this movement is not an upsurge from below of people that have anti-imperialist or anti-racist sentiments this is bonapartism this is the bourgeoisie fighting amongst themselves 
and mobilizing foot soldiers. It's the Tea Party mobilized by the Republicans to fight for them against the Democrats. It's the Democrats mobilizing, you know, Occupy Wall Street, mobilizing Black Lives Matter as their interest. This is coming from the top. This is very, very different. This is the bourgeoisie fighting amongst itself and utilizing different facts, different, different people as foot soldiers. It's not, not a grassroots mobilization, number one. And number two, number two, it's very, very controlled. And that what we should be doing in these movements is winning people to communism. That most of the people who go to a Black Lives Matter rally think Cuba is an evil country and an awful dictatorship. That think that socialism failed and has never worked. That's what most of the people thought. And that, that these kinds of mobilizations, they were an opportunity to meet people who didn't have a peace with the system, to win them to communism, to build a communist group. But they were not. They absolutely were not a place to try and contend for power. This strategy of take over the movement is a strategy for failure. It's not going to work. And yet the group I was in was never going to get its shit together. It was never going to figure out that you can't take over the movement because at the end of the day, it was a hustle. It was a scam. These people had been leading protests and that's how they'd been making their livelihoods. It's all they knew how to do. And at the end of the day, that's what they believed in. They didn't believe in communism. They didn't believe in Marxism, Leninism. They believed in being peace march and peace rally stage managers. That's what they believed in. And I kept being faced with that reality. It kept smacking me in the face. I would get so angry about this, but I just, what was I going to do? This was my organization. This is the group I'd invested in. I, was, I had so much, I'd spent so much time in the group. I, I, had, I had relationships, deep, deep personal relationships with people in this group. I just, I couldn't recognize it, but I just kept getting smacked in the face with it. And then I went to Iran. When I went to Iran, that was an amazing moment for me. I talked about it on a previous stream. But when I went to Iran, that was the first time that my identity as a guy from Ohio was treated as a good thing. I met with the filmmaker who recently died, Nader Talibzadeh. And when I first went to Iran, because I live in Brooklyn and, you know, because I, you know, I was operating out of New York City and because I'm a communist and you know, I got there and they, they assumed I was, you know, that I was a, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn whose parents were in the Communist Party. And I got to Iran and they're talking to me and I'm from Ohio and, you know, I'm from a Christian background. And, and they started talking to me about how, you know, people in Ohio hate Iran. People in Ohio support Israel and Christians, you know, they hate Iran. And, you know, Christians are taught that it's their duty to support Israel. But, you know, you look at Ohio economically, it's not doing so well. They talked to me and I knew about the opioid epidemic and how it was affecting people I went to high school with. And I remember Nader Talib Zeta saying to me, why try to be somebody else, Caleb? Just be yourself. You know, you don't, we don't need you to pretend to be a Brooklyn guy. We don't need you to pretend to be, you know, to pretend to be, you know, somebody whose parents were in the CPUSA and somebody who, you know, you know, be yourself. Your people from Ohio. Your, you know, Midwestern Americans are suffering right now. 
and you're anti-racist, you support the black freedom struggle, and you're friendly with the leaders of the Nation of Islam, and you're anti-imperialist, you understand that it's the Wall Street banks that are responsible for this opioid epidemic, you understand it's the big corporations that are doing this, why don't you stop trying to be somebody that you're not? Why don't you be yourself? Why don't you, why don't you stop trying to become the leader of the movement? And start actually getting people from small towns like yours to understand their enemy isn't Iran or Venezuela or Cuba. It's Wall Street. And that was a huge moment of realization for me. And at one point when I was in Iran, I was asked, do you believe in God? And in that moment, even though I hadn't thought about it in a long time, I answered that question honestly, and I said yes. I didn't even realize. It was weird. It was one of those things where it was just in the moment. You know, I had been in this communist atheist group. I'd had a lot of anger at religion growing up. But then in Iran, I was just straight up asked, do you believe in God? And I said yes. I said yes. I came back to the United States, and I thought about what just happened, you know? I went to, I, I went to a conference. And, you know, um, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is, Tom. I don't, I don't know what that is. So I went, to, I went to a conference and here they're, they're telling me that, you know, people from small towns like yours, Caleb, are really, really suffering. And people from small towns like yours are infested with pro-free market, pro-imperialist ideology. And that was, that was a big moment for me, but I still couldn't bring myself to really admit it. So I went back to Iran in 2015 and I participated. I participated in the Red Crescent Society in their attempt to bring medical aid to Yemen. And I'm on a ship with a number of Iranian doctors. We're trying to bring medical aid to Yemen. And, you know, the, the port we were supposed to arrive in was bombed eight times in a single day to keep us from arriving. It was the only American on that ship. It created an international incident. You can look this up. The Iran Shahid rescue ship from the Iranian Red Crescent Society. Reuters wrote articles that quoted me about it. It was a big incident. The Financial Times. It was a really, really, really big incident. I was on this ship. I was worried about my life. I mean, I saw U.S. fighter jets dipping overhead, and I'm being, I'm, we're on our way to a war-torn country. We're supposed to deliver medical aid to a war-torn country. Um, I did a lot of thinking. And then when I got back to Iran, when I got back to Iran, you know, we weren't able to deliver our medical aid, so we had to go to Djibouti. I got on a plane in Djibouti and went back to Turkey and then to Iran. When I got back to Iran, I was in Iran for another month, you know, made a documentary film. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Iran. They took me to see the Supreme leader of Iran, which was an amazing experience. I saw the Supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Syed Khamenei, Grand Ayatollah Ali Syed Khamenei. And that was a life changing experience for me, just a life changing experience for me to be in an auditorium with 20,000 people to hear and really look into the face of the Islamic revolution of Iran. 
And the way when the Supreme Leader walked in, people just started crying, sobbing, just being in his presence. And the way he spoke about revolution. And these were working class people. These were poor people. These were people who were struggling. And they supported the Supreme Leader because he was their ally, their defender against the rich and powerful. And if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have running water in their homes. If it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have you know, you know, access to telephones. If it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have electricity. And that his Islamic revolution of Iran you know, that he built was about raising people up from poverty. And that, you know, this man, I mean, he, he is their, their leader. I mean, and they, they admire him, but he had built this mass movement of people to save Iran from capitalism. And in his speech, the Supreme Leader of Iran, I will never forget this moment. The Supreme Leader of Iran is speaking in an audience of 20,000 people. I'm the only American in an audience of 20,000 people. And the leader of Iran, a country the USA has sanctioned and threatened and been waging a covert war against and is threatening to attack, he said, we don't hate Americans. He said, we call America the great Satan. He said, but when we say that, we're not talking about average Americans. We're not even talking about the country itself. He said, when we call America Shaitan i Bazorg, what we're referring to is the system of imperialism. And he described what I'd read from Lenin, the economic system of imperialism. That's what Shaitan Ibrizorg, the great Satan, was. When, he, when in Iran, when they say America is the great Satan, they're not referring to the American people. He said, they oppose the, he said, we oppose the crimes of the police in the United States, as well as the crimes of ISIS, the terrorists. They're both the same, is what he said. And then, and then, I do remember that when he said America is the great Satan, the system of America is the great Satan, not the people. This whole auditorium of 20,000 people began chanting death to America, death to America. And they're pumping their fists like this, like punching in the air, death to America, death to America, death to America. I'm standing there in an audience, in an auditorium of 20,000 people chanting death to America. It's the only American. Tears started rolling down my face. I thought about what it means to be an anti-imperialist. And I thought about how serious things are getting. And I thought about my life and what it meant and how I could have died on this ship going to Yemen and the, and the people that are suffering around the world. Thought about that. And it occurred to me, it just, I was hit in that moment with an understanding of how important it is that we take this seriously. It's not a joke. 
We've got to be in it to win it. If we really want to destroy U.S. imperialism, we really want children in Yemen to stop getting blown up. If we really want people around the world to stop being ground into poverty, we have got to take this seriously. It's not a joke. It's not a LARP. It's not about feeling good on Twitter. We have got to figure out how to actually build a real anti-imperialist movement in America. That's the only option. I thought about that. Came back to the United States. I got a Pol Pot. Came back to the United States. Came back to the United States, and my career started expanding. You know, I was doing more journalistic work. I was having a lot more articles published. I was appearing on international television. And the political group I was in, they're still dicking around. They're still fooling around, right? Oh, you know, Trayvon Martin was over, but then, you know, Baltimore had happened and Freddie Gray. And I just, I, I would go to these meetings and I would see the same nonsense that I'd seen. Whatever the liberals are doing, whatever's hip and trendy among liberals, that's what they're doing. And I actually do remember, um, you know, in this group, there was this culture where you weren't allowed to disagree, right? If you disagreed, that was uncomradely. It was disrespectful. How dare you? You know, uh, we had these national meetings that were not really meetings. People would just applaud. Everyone just applauded for the leaders. You know, people would make proposals that everyone would vote to do. And then we never did them because it wasn't what the leaders wanted to do, right? It was, there was their protest hustle. They're the ones that get to decide what we do. It was just, it was pretty gross. And so I'm back in New York and I'm, my career is expanding. I'm writing more articles. I'm giving, you know, doing more journalistic work. I'm, you know, I have my own income, you know, I'm not just, you know, struggling to get by. I have a decent income and, you know, I'm married at this point. I got married and so, you know, I have I'm my own life, my own apartment, and I'm going back to this group. And I just, I, I, at that point, I just couldn't stand to go to the meetings. I couldn't stand to go to the meetings because I just would hear the same nonsense. I, uh, I just would hear the same nonsense. And I had been hit. I had been infected with truth. I had, I had become aware of something that could not be ignored which is that we have to take this seriously, which is that I'm a guy from Ohio and people in small towns like mine are su suffering and dying from opioids and are angry. And we have to take this seriously. We have to actually win this. And the movement ain't going to win it for us. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching them. And then this was their mistake. They invited me to a meeting. So I go to this meeting. And the meeting, the topic of the meeting is that they're anti-police brutality group that meets once a week. Often, sometimes they'll have as many as 80 people there at the meeting. The leader of the group says, oh my gosh, all these people who are part of the, you know, the People's Power Assembly, they all know about the party. They all know that we're communists, but none of them want to join. Why don't any of the people want to join the party? They can't figure out why do all these woke hipsters who are doing, you know, Black Lives Matter rallies, why don't they want to join 
a group that supposedly supports North Korea and and you know is Marxist Leninist and and wants to establish you know the dictatorship of the proletariat. Why in the world would a bunch of L Rachel Maddow fan liberals not want to join some stupid you know you know you know some hardline tanky group that's the authoritarian symbol of everything that that they've been taught is evil? Why don't they want don't want to join it? And the, the leader of the group, you know the the first secretary or whatever he just repeats this over and over and over again why don't they want to join us what does anybody here know why they don't want to join us why are they not joining the party why aren't these people joining the party at that point i couldn't hold back any longer so i raised my hand my turn to talk and i said they don't want to join us because they don't agree with us these people don't agree with us. You don't join a Marxist-Leninist communist organization whose goal is to overthrow U.S. imperialism and establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, a group that is aligned with North Korea, a group that is aligned with Cuba and Venezuela, a group that supports the Chinese government. You don't join them because you think protesting is cool. You don't join a hardline communist party because you are into hipster liberalism because you saw on facebook that racism is bad because you're against white privilege you don't do that that's not how it works what we believe and what these young people believe is something different i told them i said you want them to join our organization you need to convince them of what we believe you want them to join the Workers' World Party. You need to convince them that what the Workers' World Party believes is correct. And what they believe, these bullshit liberal ideas that they have, are wrong. That's what I said. I said, you need to persuade them to believe in your ideas if you want them to join your group. It seems pretty basic, right? But it was like, it was like, it was infuriating to me. So I made my, I made the comments. The next day, I got a phone call from the leader of the group. Who the fuck do you think you are talking to me like that? Oh, you, you fucking... Be I mean, he's screaming at me. How dare I? I thought, you know, this group isn't right for me. I mean, it's not. I mean, and it wasn't, you know? And so I thought, okay, well, you know, they asked me what I thought. I've been biting my tongue all this time because it's disrespectful and uncomradely to speak too critically. And I pointed out to them that there were a lot of people who did want to join the party because they were interested in communism and those people got ignored and blown off. They didn't want to recruit real ideological young people. If somebody came around, like there was a guy who came around, um, you know, a young man of color, uh, and he came around, he was very ideological. They blew him off. Why? Because, oh, we don't like, he's too intellectual. We don't like bookish kind of people. It was like this attitude that like people that actually believe in communism can't, are, are useless. And like liberal hipster activist kind of people, oh, they're amazing. That's what we want. We want liberal hipster activist kind of people. Um, but the problem is liberal hipster activist kind of people don't want to be communists. Have no, there's no reason for them to be communists. And the synthetic left at this point is more pro-imperialist and more anti-communist, more anti-communist than, than the mainstream than the right wing is. So I'm just, 
I'm just at the point where I just, okay, I told him what I thought. And I felt, I remember when I said that in the meeting, it was like a huge weight had been lifted off of my chest. I had never felt so, it was like I had been storing up to tell them that for years. And when I said it, it was like, huh, I told them that you need to win people to communism. And their response was, you know, next day I got called up on the phone and cussed out. You know, so my career kept going. I kept getting invited to international conferences. I kept doing international television work and I kept writing articles. Um, and eventually they, they didn't like an article I wrote. And so they very politely asked me, you know, can you like write a statement that says you don't represent the party? I said, sure. And at that point, I was just hoping to just quietly step away from the group. So I wrote this very carefully worded statement that wasn't a resignation. I believe it even said, this is not a resignation. I love the party, but I'm doing separate stuff now. It was like, it was designed to be very, very polite. As soon as that statement came out, I started getting phone calls from people around the country. And they were smearing me, and they were claiming that I'd converted to Islam, which was false. They were claiming I'd become a Mormon, which was also false. They were claiming all kinds of stuff. Of course, you know, just like everyone who's ever left the group, you know, PSL, they said PSL was racist, right? That's, you know, that's why they quit. Well, they said I was racist, they, you know, and they're smearing me around the country. You know, so at that point, I demanded, after I was hearing from all around the country that people were being told not to speak to me, you know, being told, you know, that I was no good. I called up the leader of the group and I, you know, I, one of the leaders of the group and I sat down with her. I said, what's going on? I'm being told all these things, right? You know, I thought I was stepping away on good terms, you know, that I had a difference and we just couldn't work together. And I'm doing this. I have this career now as a writer and a journalist and all this. And I thought we were leaving on good terms. She denied it all, even though it was all traced back to this individual in particular. She lied to my face. Oh, I never would say that. Oh, th those people are just making it up. I never told anyone you converted to Islam. I never told anyone that you'd become a Mormon. I never told anyone that you were racist. She had told, she, that very person had told them all that. But anyway, so then this is the, the, the classic moment. Classic moment. She says to me, she says, we would like you, Caleb, to come back around the party. I thought, really? I mean, even though I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm this and I'm that and I'm all these awful things. You'd like me to come back around the party. But she said, we don't want you to give any more speeches and we don't want you to write any more articles. She said, but we really would like your help petitioning to get one of our candidates on the ballot in another state, you know, and, um, you know, uh, we could use some help with some of these rallies we're having. So, you know, we'd really like you to come back around, but we just don't want you, you know, talking about communism. And I said, you know, I'll get back to you on that. And that was the last time I ever spoke to this person. Um, and that was how my relationship with them came to an end. And I had been trying to avoid it, but I couldn't avoid it. And so, of course, immediately, you know, they... Social media is playing up our differences and, you know, and, and so I'm just kind of on my own at that point. And, you know, then the Trump election happened and I went to Trump rallies and covered them. And I went to Bernie Sanders rallies and I covered them. And I saw with my own eyes that many of the people who were becoming Trump supporters should be communists. They were mad at immigrants. 
They were mad at Muslims, and they should have been mad at capitalism. And that a lot of the people at the Bernie Sanders rallies also should be communists, right? They, you know, they were they were, you know, all about money out of politics and all of that, but they should be understanding the problem is capitalism. They should be standing in solidarity with Cuba and Venezuela. They should be against the wars. And that there's a huge upsurge of people that are becoming class conscious, that are realizing that something is rotten in the state of Denmark, that something's rotten wrong with capitalism. But they're not becoming communists. They're not becoming communists. Instead, they're becoming Bernie Sanders people and they're becoming Trump supporters. And of course, what are the communist groups doing? They're spitting on these people. They're yelling at them. They're being hostile to them. Or if it's the Bernie movement, they're just blindly tailing after it, not engaging with them, not winning them over. And so based on that, you know, I was approached. There were a couple younger people that liked my speeches and were talking to me and liked some of the stuff I'd written that I was talking to. So we launched, they, they launched really, I wasn't part of it. They launched a club called Students and Youth for a New America. Students and Youth for a New America is what they launched. And it was a club and we had a couple classes in New York City. Um, and one of us got on the Tucker Carlson show to talk about Venezuela. And it was just, it was something we could do. You know, it was just something, something that we could do. We had forums, you know, we had forums, we had classes, we published some pamphlets. It was something that we could do. Something we could do, um, basically. I mean, I had to intervene. I knew what the answer was. The answer was socialism. The answer was anti-imperialism. And Trumpism was not going to solve the problem. And Bernie Sandersism was not going to solve the problem. And the communists were just refusing to talk about communism and just tailing after whatever the liberals were doing. Something needed to be done. So we formed Students and Youth for a New America. I did Students and Youth for a New America. We had some forums. We had some classes. Started doing YouTube live streams. And then I went to Los Angeles to visit my good friend, Ramiro. Ramiro was somebody I knew. We were both in the Workers' World Party together. In fact, he's one of the people I recruited to the Workers' World Party who they were not interested in because he was, quote, too intellectual, right? Um, he was a man of color. He's, you know, he's brilliant and ideological, has a great YouTube channel, Unmasking Imperialism. But when I brought him around, they're like, no, he's too intellectual. We don't want him around. You know, and I thought, why do you not want him around? And then some stupid hipster you know, would come by, you know, who, you know, and, and they would want to recruit that stupid hipster. Well, he's a real activist. He's a real activist. Yeah. For the Democrats, you know, and Ramiro was awesome and they didn't appreciate Ramiro, but you know, so, so, you know, I, I went to LA to visit my friend Ramiro for a couple of weeks and he said, why don't you have a speaking engagement in LA? Why don't I book a hall for you in Los Angeles? Why don't I book a hall for you and you can have an event in LA? And so I did. Um, and we had an event and there were like 15 people there, right? The YouTube channel was way smaller than it is now. I don't think I had 5,000 followers at that point. And I was doing live streams every Saturday, you know, and it was before the pandemic and you know, it was, it was a small YouTube channel. Um, but you know, I said I was going to be in LA. We had an event like palm cards and flyers to take out and like 15 people came. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Rainer Shea actually showed up and sat in the back and like left early, but I'm not sure it was him, but I think it might've been him. I think he's out there by LA, but I could be wrong. But anyway, I, it, it might've been Rainer Shea. I'm not sure. But anyway, after the event, one of the people who came to the event, I'm meeting these people who I've never met before who are loving my streams and are loving what I'm about and are loving the YouTube channel. 
right? It was a much smaller community at that point, but you know, it was very, these people had shown up and they were really excited. There's probably some of you that were at that event watching right now, but it was, it was a small hall. We got this big hall. It was like 15 people came. It was fine. One of those people there is walking with me and he said, Caleb, what do we do? I know you got the students and youth for a new America club and that they have some nice forums. What do we do? I said, I want to build a think tank called the Center for Political Innovation that will put out patriotic socialism. It'll put out socialism that could actually win over the people. It'll put out a message of socialism with American characteristics. And this guy, shout out to you, this guy said, let's do it. And we did it. And it's happening now. Center for Political Innovation has hundreds of members at this point. We've got branches in multiple states. Every corner of the country, we've got people. We've published multiple books. The Communist Party is terrified of us. The, the PSL, the Party of Socialism and Liberation, is terrified of us. All these movementist groups are terrified because we're doing what they refuse to do. We're going to the masses. Our message of patriotic socialism has now you know, been adopted by Jackson Hinkle. It's been adopted by the Haas community. We're on fire. And what, what this whole movement, Center for Political Innovation, all of this came out of was realizing that we have to take this seriously. It was what I just couldn't bring myself to face which was that we have to get out of the movement and get to the masses. And that people from small towns like mine and people from the heartland of America, people who might vote for Donald Trump or might vote for Bernie Sanders, those are the people that will lay the basis for American socialism and anti-imperialism. And that's what I, I came to discover. And, and my journey to discovering that was a lot like Hamlet. But I didn't do what Hamlet did. I didn't just keep denying it until it killed me. I was able to finally come to terms with reality, as hard as it was for me to face. It was so hard for me to face. It was so difficult for me to recognize the truth. It was so hard. It was so, so hard because I didn't want to see it because this group was my family and this group was all I had, but I kept being confronted with this reality and I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to face it, but finally I did face it. And I'm lucky that I'm young. You know, I'm only 34. I was in my late 20s at that point. If I'd have been 60, if I'd have been 70, I wasn't the only person in the group that realized there were problems. But there were people in the group that had been there for 40 years and they weren't going to change. But, you know, I was young enough that I could start over, that I could say we have to move in a new direction. That's a, that's a miracle. It's a miracle in a lot of ways. You know, I was young enough that I could, that I could realize that we have to change direction. And I did change direction. And so I want you to imagine. Hamlet, the play Hamlet, but I want you to imagine that it ends differently. I want you to imagine an alternate version of Hamlet. I want you to imagine that Hamlet is visited by the ghost, and the ghost says to Hamlet, Hamlet, you know, I was wrongfully killed. You know, your uncle is the usurper of the throne. He's, he's come to power unjustly. And Hamlet says, wow. He says, then I have no choice. And he goes to leaders of the military of Denmark. And he meets with other members of the royal family and tells him what he knows. He patiently forms a coalition. And then one day, instead of sitting around and going to die, to sleep, 
to sleep perchance to dream. Hamlet instead takes up his sword and marches in to the castle and calls out his uncle and says, you killed my father. You're a traitor to the nation. You betrayed all that Denmark stands for. You are a usurper of the throne and slays him and takes the crown off of his head and puts the crown upon his own and reclaims, reclaims the nation from the usurper. That, that is how the play Hamlet should end. That's what should have happened. The play Hamlet, it's a lesson about what could happen if you don't recognize the truth. But it could be a very, very exciting, happy play if Hamlet were capable of allowing himself to recognize the truth. It's a truth you don't want to face. It's a truth that's difficult to swallow. But if you can recognize the truth and if you can take the bull by the horns, as hard as it is, you can triumph. And I want to tell you a little secret. I'm going to tell you a little secret. And people don't want to hear this. But if there's anyone watching right now who's a member of the Communist Party USA, you're going to know how true I am, how right I am about what I'm about to say. The people that are denouncing the Center for Political Innovation and patriotic socialism the loudest are the people who agree with us the most. There are some people in the Communist Party who are just foaming at the mouth. Caleb, he's wrong. There's people in the PSL that are doing that. Yeah. Great video, by the way. This guy is great. You should check out his stuff. Um, there's people in the PSL. There's people in the Communist Party that are just foaming at the mouth. And the reason that they're foaming at the mouth is because they are stuck in that Hamlet spot. They are where I was. That's where I was, comrade. That's where I was. In 2012, in 2013, 2014. That's where I was. And they're in this organization. And they're recognizing exactly what I'm saying. They know it's true. That the synthetic left, the movement, ain't going nowhere. At least nowhere good. That the hope for the country is out of the movement to the masses. And they realize this. And in their anger, they're seething. No, Caleb, Caleb and Haas and Hinkle are all Nazis. And oh, they got to shut up. I got to make them shut up. And it's because there's a voice in their head. There's a voice in the back of their head that knows that we are right. We wouldn't bother them. We wouldn't bother them if they didn't think that. You know, they would have said, oh, okay, they're wrong Move, and moved on. But no. They fixate and they tweet about nothing but us. Nothing but us. It's like we're a brain worm. They just can't get out of their head. They just can't get it out of their head because they know we are right. There's a part of their brain that knows that we are right and they just can't let themselves see it. They're trying so hard not to see it. They're trying so hard not to let themselves see 
what is right in front of their face, that we are right, that patriotic socialism out of the movement to the masses, this is the way it has to go. Socialism with American characteristics, this is the way it has to go. If we're actually going to see American imperialism fall apart, we're actually going to see it destroyed, we have to develop a movement that is capable of mobilizing the millions against the millionaires. We're going to have to demand a government of action that will fight for working families. We're going to have to exude strength, not weakness. We're going to have to not be a cynical, edgelordy, teenage rebellion phase. We're going to have to actually be a group of serious worker politicians who offer a serious program that people can actually see implemented, that offer not chaos and instability, but a way out of the nightmare of capitalism. We have to get out of the movement and we have to get to the masses. We have to become a serious political movement. We have to offer stability, not chaos. We have to offer programs and policies people can understand. We're doing things. We have a whole new, unique approach that around the world is pretty normal. The way communist parties act in most of the world is the exact same way we act. But in the United States, in the United States, it's unique. Because communists are a bunch are a screaming mob that the Democratic Party has on speed dial. All right, so we need to stir up some problems against the Democratic Party. All right, give me give me the Workers World Party. All right, yeah, can you have a protest around this evening around uh, that trendy cause that we were talking about? All right, very very good. You'll be there and you'll be in the cage, right? And the NYPD will set up the sound permit for you, right? And we'll have the news truck there, and that'll convince people who watch to support the Democratic Party. And all right, can you call the Republicans fascists this time? Oh, okay. They, I liked that last time. The, the sign where the Republicans were fascist, that was, that was totally awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this for us. We really appreciate it. Uh, bye-bye. You know, I mean, it's not like that. Obviously, the Democrats don't call them up, but that's basically what the movement is. The movement is the Democratic Party's protest squad. When the Democrats want to intensify things, uh, they have the communists go out there and be the mob in the street that has their back. And when they don't, they don't. And, and that's, that's the situation. And that won't ever lead to socialism. Liberal mobs are not going to establish socialism. It's about sinking your roots into the broad masses of people. It's about developing a base among the population. So there you go. There you go, folks. That was my opening remarks. Took me a little bit longer than I thought, but I had a lot to say, and I hope that it was helpful. I like to use Hamlet uh, to make the point. But anyhow, folks, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Um, that would be awesome. Um, uh, we'll start doing the roll call, and then I will start answering your super chat questions, and then we'll be done. Um, so there you go. Um, so there we go. If there's any more super chats, feel free to send them my way. Caleb, Caleb walked so that we could run out of the movement and to the masses. Your experience and willingness to share them has taught us all a lot. I'm really glad to hear that. Sometimes I worry that, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people seething that really don't like what I say on here. You know, I am, you know, I mean, I didn't name names tonight. You know, I didn't name names. Um, but so, you know, no one can say I like smeared them personally. I think you can probably do the math to figure out which individuals I'm talking about. But, 
you know, it is what it is. I'm just trying. I, it needs to be done. We have to be serious about this if we're going to win. Ryan in Oakland is with us. Uh, Jamie Nix says it's one of my best streams. Great. Phoenix, Arizona. Jamie in St. Paul. Jeremy in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, Chicago. Jason Hunt. Smedley Butler. Uh, California. Richard. Minneapolis. Great show pulling in Hamlet. Johnny in Pennsylvania. John Yu in New York. Onida in New York. Elizabeth from Virginia. Shout out to you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, are you a mod? You should be a mod. You should be a mod if you're not already a mod. Is Elizabeth a mod? I have to go back. I'm on the StreamYard page. All right. Well, we should make Elizabeth a mod if we can. Elizabeth. Yes, we'll make Elizabeth a mod. Elizabeth is now a mod. There you go. You've been modded, Elizabeth. Use your powers wisely. Don D in NYC. Is he a mod? I think he's already a mod. All right. Very good. Yada Yisrael. You're now a mod, Elizabeth. Uh, Dallas in Texas, right? MJ in California. Cap Ann. There we go. There we go. Marty in New York. Uh, very, very good. Marty in New York. Isaiah, uh, um, Io Hillary in New York. Shout out to you, Io. I hope it was hope it was interesting for you tonight. You're a great friend of all that we do. Shout out to you, Io. Uh, Zach in Seattle. Welcome. Che Guevara in New Mexico. Harold Sullivan in Naples, Florida. Nam Daguerre in Pittsburgh. Your name of war in Pittsburgh. Palo in Northern California. Vacation in Mindanao. Uh, we'll return to Brazil uh, soon. Uh, Treasure Coast, Florida. Kendall in San Diego. Kathy Duran in, in Cali. Uh, Isaac Cabrera in Vancouver. Um, Brisbane, Australia. Edge of Silicon Valley, Jenny Boris. Very good, Jenny Boris. Patrick in Rhode Island. Patrick in Rhode Island. Um, very, very, very good. Very, very, very good. Very, 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 very good. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here. Elias from Finland, Phoenix, Arizona, Tetsu, 96. Very, very good. Mayfield, Ohio. I remember Mayfield, Ohio. I've been out there. Pomona, California. Mo, uh, Derek from Tacoma. There you go. All right. Hello from Silicon Valley, says Frank Nyha. Very good. Very good. Marta from Poland. How are things out there in Poland? X from rural Iceland. X from rural Iceland. All right, folks. I'm going to start answering super chat questions. If you have more super chat questions for me to answer, by all means, shoot them my way. Um, we're going to start answering super chat questions. All right. Franz Kafka. I honestly am not a big fan of Franz Kafka. I find the stories to be a little bit depressing. The hunger artist is a very sad story. Uh, the trial, you know, it's kind of dark and, you know, Franz Kafka, it's kind of like a nightmare, right? It's a sophisticated nightmare. It's kind of a postmodern nightmare about, about a tragic, horrific situation, right? Um, I think there's one, it was there one about a man who like wakes up and he's turned into a bug. I think it's called the metamorphosis. It's very, very dark and, and depressing kind of stories. Um, very creative, certainly elaborate circumstances. Um, I think the trial is famous because the guy doesn't know exactly what he's been accused of. Uh, so he has no way of defending himself. Um, right. I think that, um, right. The, the metamorphosis, the man wakes up one day and he's been turned into a, a bug or something. Uh, the hunger artist is a guy who like starves himself as a form of entertainment. And then finally he just kills himself. Uh, kind of dark, sad, sinister stories. I don't like the vibe, honestly. I'll just be honest. They don't, it's the kind of thing I don't like listening to. 
Uh, it's just, you know, doesn't put me in a good mood. There we go. Will Croatia stop Finland's entrance into NATO? Will Croatia stop Finland's entrance into NATO? I should hope so. I mean, I can't imagine why they would want to intensify conflict with Russia anymore at this point. Russia has said many times um, that they don't want a confrontation. Uh, we got David Fox and Bendigo, Australia. Um, so I don't know why they would do that. NATO expansion is not beneficial to anybody, and I, I see that happening, and it's pretty awful. Um, so there you go. Will Croatia stop? I, I hope so. Let me just put it that way. I hope so. Um, Next question. Uh, was Obama a marketing gimmick? No, I mean, part of Obama's presidency was about showing people around the world that the United States wasn't racist anymore. It was about changing the image of the United States. It was showing the United States wasn't hostile to Muslims. It was showing the United States was more worldly. It was about trying to fix up the image of U.S. imperialism. That's a reality, right? And that, that is a factor, right? That doesn't mean that Obama isn't an amazing speaker. That doesn't mean Obama is not a a successful political leader, a very effective political leader. He is definitely that. But I think there was a feeling on the part of the elite that, that the United States is widely perceived as being a white supremacist racist country. And that's part of the wokeness is about trying to cleanse that image. The, the USA is a racist country. The USA was founded on genocide of Native Americans. This is a reality. And that around the world, people know that. So the idea is in order to help the United States more effectively wage human rights, NGO, color revolutions around the world, it's, it's necessary to clean up that image. And I think Obama's presidency in a lot of ways is like that. You know, it's funny. I was talking about the other day with a good friend of mine, I was talking about the, uh, the Waco series on Netflix. I don't know if you saw that. It's, it's a, you know, the series about the Waco standoff which happened when I was a kid. I remember that the Waco standoff and shootout or whatever, you know, with the Waco, the branch Davidians, right. It was a big news story in the early nineties. There's like a, a mini series that Netflix did about it. And if you watch it, it's very clear that it's coming from like an Obama perspective. And it's basically an argument for like the Iran nuclear deal, basically more or less. It's basically arguing that, you know, David Koresh is portrayed in a somewhat negative light, but of all the, the, the dramatizations or accounts of Waco documentaries I've ever seen, I'd say David Koresh looks much more sympathetic in that film than anything I've ever seen. The hero is an FBI negotiator who wants to de-escalate it, and it's basically the tragedy is that the FBI won't listen to him. And it's interesting, and you think, what, why would they make a, a miniseries where you know the, the Branch Davidians are portrayed as being kind of okay, kind of good? Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, how is, why would they do that? Well, it's basically arguing that, that, you know, that you can deescalate things and you can negotiate to prevent conflicts. And I think basically the series was an attempt to, you know, to kind of explain the mindset of the nuclear deal, right? You know, that, that, you know, the idea and the eyes of the U S imperialists, you have a fanatical religious country, Iran, and uh, you want to disarm them, which they don't have nukes to begin with. So that's the whole thing. They've completely complied with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But in their propaganda, they want to, quote unquote, disarm Iran. And they want to do it through negotiations, etc. Whereas there is this military industrial complex and Netanyahu and others that are just pushing pressure on them. And it could lead to a dangerous place. Right? And I think that that's I saw that completely. Right. I mean, you know, that they were portraying. You know, David Koresh, in the same way the U.S. media portrays the Islamic Republic of Iran, 
Um, but then they're showing the humanity of the people there, just like there's human people in Iran. Uh, then they're showing the FBI negotiator, like he's the hero, like Obama's the hero, you know, like John Kerry's the hero negotiating the deal. And then they're showing the FBI guys who eventually blow up, you know, fire the FBI guy and don't let him negotiate and blow the place up. They're showing them like the hard right wing that just wants a confrontation with Iran. I thought that was very obvious. Now, you know, maybe somebody else would not get that out of the series. But if I'm not mistaken, isn't Obama on the board of Netflix? Isn't like Michelle Obama or one of them actually on the board of Netflix? When I saw that Waco series, I thought that was absolutely an analogy for the Iran nuclear deal. And maybe I'm just so geopolitically focused, you know, that that's that I, I saw that and I thought this is about the Iran nuclear deal. That's what I thought. I thought this is a straight up, and this is how the liberals see things, right? Is they are more strategic, they're more psychological in their approach, and they want to gradually, they want to do what they did with Gaddafi, right? Where they slip their influence in there and cause problems from within, and they don't want a full-on direct confrontation because that can blow up their face. The Iraq war shot up the oil prices, isolated the United States, and, you know, emboldened the, um, you know, what they call the axis of resistance, you know, got Russia got stronger, uh, the Bolivarian countries got stronger, right? That if you just go in dramatically with big, huge wars like the USA did in Iraq, it can blow up in your face. Whereas, you know, if you're strategic and you negotiate and you make alliances, you can eventually get what you want. And I think that that's, you know, that's what that, that Netflix film was very much about. And that, that FBI guy was Obama. That's what I think. Um, okay, so someone says it's it's not he's on the board. It's that he has a movie production company on Netflix. That's what it is. Okay, well, I don't know. I doubt they were the ones that made that documentary, but I don't know. That's Netflix is very much pushing kind of a liberal, you know, they're a monopoly, basically. There's no real competitors with them. And, uh, you know, I, I think more or less that, um, that um, you know, that, that Netflix is kind of pushing, Netflix is kind of pushing a liberal Democratic Party, you know, synthetic left kind of message, more or less. So there you go. All righty. All righty. Uh, would I ever write a history of the Occupy Wall Street protests? I've thought about it. I've thought about it. And if anyone has any more super chats, folks, because I'm down to this is there's two left. So if there's anything else people want me to talk about, by all means, do so. But um, I've thought about it. I have thought about um you know, I have thought about writing a history of the Occupy Wall Street protests. Um, I was thinking at one point I thought I might write a book about the year of 2011, but now I, my views of the year of 2011 have changed, but I might, you know, I mean, I might. The question is, how would I write it in a way, you know, that it's not a memoir, right? That it's actually about what happened, right? And what we can learn from it. And I, I mean, I would be open to doing that. There's so many things I need to write. You know, I wake up every day and it's like, there's so many hours in the day I'm writing, I'm writing the introduction to a very important book right now that we're going to publish. It's, you know, obviously not one that we wrote, but the introduction, I'm writing a very important introduction to a very important book that the Center for Political Innovation is going to publish soon. Um, I'm working on it and I'm really enjoying writing it because there's a lot of insights and, you know, my worldview has really developed over the course of, of this topic. So I, I spent a lot of time writing that today and it's just, there are so many hours in the day, right? I mean, and I, I get a lot of requests for interviews. You know, I'm on, I'm, I'm on Sputnik radio a lot. I'm, I'm going on people's YouTube channels a lot. And there's a lot of people who, who like what we have to offer here. And so I want to give everyone their due. I like to take every opportunity I get, but you know, sometimes you have to prioritize your time. We need to get the invitation sent out for the national gathering. If you're a member of the center for political innovation, be sure to join us 
uh, June 22nd through 26th. Uh, we're having a national gathering in Kansas. Uh, all members of the CPI are invited. So if you want to come, you better be a member of the CPI and you can be invited. It's going to be great. Just found out about an entertainer uh, who's coming. Rather well-known entertainer is going to be there. So he's not a CPI person, but he's in line with us in some ways. And he's going to be there, it looks like. Can't announce it until it's sealed. But it looks like uh, a very important entertainer is going to come perform. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, good things are happening. We're just going to keep going, right? Um, you know, we have been, we're being viciously smeared right now. These people are using the fact that they have a big platform. They can say anything they want. They can really just say anything they want. You know, and it's like, it's so obvious the things they're saying are not true, you know, but, you know, they can say whatever they want, right? They could accuse me of, you know, having, having AIDS if they wanted to. They could accuse me of, of actually being a space alien. I mean, for all, I mean, these people, they have a big platform, you know, and so they just have a bigger platform than me. And so they just attack and we don't know why they're motivated to do it. It is odd that they released an attack on somebody else who they deemed to be pro-Russian around the same time. Someone who has nothing to do with me. That's a little sketch. And you have to wonder, you know, is Patreon money being handed out? And that, that Patreon money just comes from an anonymous, you know, source. And that anonymous source is perhaps being nudged by the disinformation governance board. And this is all about countering quote unquote disinformation because my God, you know, Caleb, Caleb works for RT and Caleb doesn't repeat CNN propaganda about Ukraine and he actually understands the bio labs and all that stuff going on. So he must be a Russian disinformation operation. So we've got to, we've got to discredit him somehow. So let's, you know, have a whole bunch of quotes from him that are completely reasonable, but I'll tell them that it somehow means he's a Nazi. You know, I mean, we're being attacked, right? And uh, what people don't understand is that, you know, I mean, and I will repeat myself, forgive me if this, you know, I mean, but it needs to be said, you know, Attacking me is, they're not attacking me because you don't agree with me about patriotic socialism. They're not attacking me because I like Cuba and you don't. They're not attacking me because I think China's socialist and you think it's state capitalist. They're attacking me because I'm anti-imperialist. They're attacking me because I'm standing against this war in Ukraine and I'm exposing that Russia is not our enemy. They're attacking me because I'm building the Center for Political Innovation and getting socialism to people in a way they can actually understand it and anti-imperialist socialism. That's why they are attacking me, right? That's why they're attacking me. And if you go along with that, you're joining your enemy. I mean, if you're against the American government, if you're against American imperialism, if you're against the American state apparatus, and you're joining the vicious attacks on me, you're joining the enemy, right? And that's what a lot of these people don't understand. They're like, well, I'm super revolutionary, but Caleb, no, no. The attacks on me are not coming from a place of concern. The people that are going out of their way to just tell dirty, rotten lies about us, just dirty, rotten lies. I mean, I could go into great detail, but it's not really worth doing. But it's just like just taking any little thing I say and trying to say it means something it clearly doesn't mean, you know, trying to claim that, you know, that that saying you want the people of the world to unite against imperialism is somehow advocating white separatism because you were used the word children. And so did George Lincoln Rockwell in his 14 words. You know, people making ridiculous claims like that, right? They're, they're, they're doing it and they're being agitated and promoted and, and supported in the algorithms for doing it because I am anti-NATO and because I'm an anti-imperialist. And if you, don't, if you don't think that's true, why did they ban me from PayPal? Why does it have Russian state-affiliated media tagged on my Twitter, right? I mean, this comes from the top. This comes from the top and that there is 
There are people who claim to be leftists, who support U.S. imperialism, support the Ukrainian government, support the USA spending billions of dollars arming those extremists, right? That, that think the fact that there are bio labs in Ukraine that are funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, which is a fact, they think that's a crazy conspiracy theory, and anyone who says it should be silenced and shut down on social media. Those people, uh, you know, are viciously going after me, and they're using their platform to do it. Right now, and if you want to side with those people, you shouldn't call yourself a socialist. You shouldn't call yourself a communist. You should call yourself an enforcer of the status quo. You know, you're really not that different than the John Birch Society going out to beat up anti-Vietnam War protesters. Right? Oh, you're a traitor. You're working for the enemy, and they would beat up anti-war protesters. That's what you're doing if you go after me. Right? If you disagree about patriotic socialism, we can talk about it or we cannot talk about it. That's not what it's about. You know, I don't agree with everything Mumia Abu-Jamal has ever said. Mumia Abu-Jamal is a vegetarian. I think the beliefs of his religious group move are a little bit anarcho-primitivist. I don't care because I know that Mumia Abu-Jamal is innocent. He was targeted for being a black revolutionary, right? And so I support Mumia regardless of whether or not I agree with everything he said because I know they didn't put him in prison for being an anarcho-primitivist. They put him in prison and wanted to execute him for being a black revolutionary. So I get it. And we need to get back to that understanding. Because they're coming for all of us. Anyone who's pro-Russia, anyone who's pro-China, anyone who's pro-Venezuela, anyone who's pro-Iran, they're coming for all of us right now, right? All of us. And I really, I'm talking to people on here who like me, but don't like other people who like me. Cut it out, all right? We're not going to see eye to eye on every little issue. We've got to hold the anti-imperialist camp together, right? If you don't like Haas, you know, there's a lot of things Haas says that I don't agree with. There's ways he's reacted to situations I don't agree with, but it's okay. Haas is part of our community. If you don't like, you know, you don't like Jackson Hinkle, again, there are things Jackson Hinkle has said over the years that I don't agree with, but he's part of our community. If you don't like Ewoks Unhinged, if you don't like Dust James, if, we got to get, we got to stay together, guys. We really have got to stay together. We need the anti-imperialist camp to stay together. We need the, the Patsock patriotic socialist, anti-imperialist camp to stay together. And honestly, you know, we ought to also call out people like Ben Norton and people like Danny Haifong who agree with us also, but still do this. Oh, I don't believe in patriotic socialism. That's racist. They do that, you know, that performative. Okay. You don't have to agree with us, but stop blackballing us and stop thinking you gain any credibility by distancing yourself from us and stop, stop locking us out of anti-imperialist spaces. Right. Ben Norton is a jerk. You know, in a lot of ways, he's just a real asshole. All right. And he is being targeted. They say the same shit about him that they say about me. They say about Ben Norton all the time. They say that he's a Nazbol, that he's a white supremacist and all this. And it doesn't make any difference. But yet he is he's hostile to us. And and it's bullshit. Right. And the same with Danny Haifong. Now, he's never directly attacked us, but it's still like, you know, he's pro China. He's pro right. And they, you know, they attack him and all of that. And uh, he's still, you know, oh, I'm better than them. I'm not like that. Cut it out. Come on, guys. We need the anti-imperialist camp to have each other's backs. It's pretty basic. It's pretty basic. Pretty basic. We need to stand together because they want to kill all of us. They want to destroy all of us. They don't care what your position. They don't care about COVID mandate. They, they want to destroy all of us. They want to destroy all of us at this point. Uh, do you know what's going on with the stock market? All right. We'll talk about that. I, I heard something about it, right? Digital.
and we need there to be unity in the anti-imperialist camp. And social media is really, really good. Uh, is really, really good at this point um, at at playing up people's differences. It's really good at that. If you disagree with somebody, they're going to put their link on your thing. And we need to find a way that look, all of us who who don't want war with Russia, don't want war with China. You know, we need to learn to, you know, treat each other with respect and build some kind of alliance, you know, and, you know, um, you know, we need that. I mean, you know, we need that in a lot of ways. We just need, we need people to learn to get along and not blow up and not make every difference an unforgivable thing. Every so often, somebody, you know, is going to let you down. You know, and I want you in, in your mind right now to prepare for the day that I let you down because it's going to happen. There's going to be a time where I'm going to get on here and I might even say it with a smug look on my face, something you disagree with. And I'm going to get on here and you, you think that um, blue is the best color. And I'm going to get on here and I'm going to be like, you're stupid if you don't think yellow is the best color. And you're going to look at your phone and you're going to be like, that asshole, Caleb, I never want to hear from him again. Oh, I can't stand him. And that's going to happen. Trust me. Anyone who opens their mouth as much as I do is eventually going to say something that offends you. And you just have to be ready to go, all right, Caleb, you know what? You're wrong about that. You need to be more sensitive to people who like blue better than yellow. And, you know, I think you're wrong. Maybe you're even going to send a super chat or a regular chat about why... I need to cool it and not say the wrong thing about yellow and blue and, and be more tolerant of people's color preferences. And we need to find a way that even though I offended you, even though I offended you by disrespecting people who like blue, by saying yellow is clearly the best, that we can still collaborate. Right. And that's what we need to do. And social media is really, really good at making that not happen. You know, social media is very good at making that not happen. Part of it is that I can't see you. You can see me, right? Because I'm looking at my camera, but I can't see you. And especially if we're both typing, you, we can't see each other. And often when you're around somebody who disagrees with you, you think, okay, I'm not going to go there because you read the other person's body language. Right, You read the other person's body language, you read the other person's tone of voice, and you think, okay, I'm not going to go there. Not on social media. On social media, it's all hanging out there. I can't see your body language. You can't see my body language for the most part. And at some point, I am going to say something that rubs you the wrong way. You know? And that's going to happen. And what we need to do is we need to be able to say, well, you know what? Caleb was wrong about that. And maybe, maybe I'm not going to listen for a few days because I really wish he wouldn't say that. But you know what? Caleb, when it comes to stuff that matters, like Russia, like China, like Venezuela, like Cuba, like Iran, like breaking with the Democratic Party, like demanding a government of action that fights for working families, I'm still with you. That's what we need, right? Synthetic left is about to oust the Liberal National Party in Australia and elect Labour. Thoughts on the Australian Labour Party? Oh, okay, we can talk about that. Australian Labour Party. All right, and um, it needs to be said that that we can't all get along, right? And that that this kind of stuff destroys organizations. This kind of stuff destroys organizations, and 
you know, um, we, if, if we want to build, we need what is needed more than anything in the United States right now is a solid block of anti-imperialists. That's what we need. A solid block of anti-imperialists. That's what we need. And we aren't going to be able to build that if every difference between us results in a big blow up that is unforgivable. You know, we just got to learn, got to learn to see somebody say something you don't agree with and go, okay, that's, that sucks. You know, you know that not everything has to be drawing a line in the sand. And that's part of the wokeness. The wokes are all about, they think someone pointed this out to me and I thought it was an interesting observation. The wokes think it's heroic to disavow your friends. But they said that the alt-right and the, the anarcho-communists or anarcho-capitalists or whatever they're called, they think it's heroic to stick by their friends. And that's an interesting observation. The wokes are all about disavowing your friends, disavowing everyone. And on the alt-right, it's kind of like, well, you know, I will stand by him, even if, you know what I mean? we got to learn to have a culture of standing by each other on the left because the woke brain tumor, the, the woke brain worms, the broke, the woke disease is about atomizing us further into isolated atomized individuals so that they can completely roll over us. The more isolated you are, the more you feel alone, the more you feel, you know, that that's what it's about, right? That's how that's how the ruling class intends to stay in power. They want to just roll over all of us. Um, and so we have to figure out how among anti-imperialists, there can be an understanding that even though we aren't all on the same page about everything, even though some of us make big mistakes sometimes, trust me, there have been some big mistakes made. I've seen some stuff, you know, and, you know, I may say that in private to the person, but I don't feel a need to embarrass the person on social media and say, I condemn you. I don't have a need to do that. I will often make my concerns known in private, you know, and, you know, um, if it's someone I care about and they just made a mistake, I will just, you know, if they talk to me or, you know, I may initiate the conversation. I may say, look, you just made a mistake. You just made a mistake. Right? You made a mistake. Um, you know, I, I think that yeah, I know you didn't mean it this way, but it came across this way. Or, you know, well, I understand how you see it, but there's another way to see it. And, you know, just leave it at that. And understand that, you know, you're not going to change the person's position. Uh, understand, or that maybe even the person does realize they did something wrong, but just understand that, you know, these things happen. We need to not have every disagreement turn into atomization because we will never build a block that can effectively counter U.S. imperialism if we do that. And, you know, at this point, you know, we need to hold the people. We, we need, there's a couple things we need to do. First of all, the people that have determined to make us their enemies and have engaged in a smear campaign against us, we need to develop mechanisms for holding them accountable and calling them out, right? You know, there, there is a, a layer of people. Jacobin didn't mention me in the article about PayPal. They mentioned Consortium News. They mentioned Mint Press. They specifically didn't mention me. We need to find a way that that doesn't get forgotten and that Jacobin has to explain why they did that, has to justify and come out and say why they think that was acceptable, right? 
We need to call out Ben Burgess for the fact that he's whispering in the ear of the people that are smearing us, that he's an advisor to the people that are, are viciously smearing us, even though he's smart enough to know the smears are bullshit. He knows we're not Nazis. He knows we're not white supremacists. He said on his streams, the Nazbol thing is a bullshit that doesn't exist. That's not real. But yet he's buddy, buddy and close with serfs. He's close with Vosh. He's close with all these people who engage in the smear campaign. He's close with Anna Kasparian, uh, Anna Kasparian, uh, who has smeared Jimmy Dore very viciously. And we need to find ways of holding Ben Burgess accountable and say, Ben Burgess, you're not an idiot. You're a smart guy, Ben Burgess. And you are enabling and abetting people to do vicious things that you know are wrong. We need to call you out on that, right? Might be good to get David Fox to talk about Australia elections. Labor liberal captured by U.S. nothing will change in foreign relations. Makes sense. Makes sense. That actually is a good idea to interview David Fox on that. Um, You know, and um, that needs to be said. Um, So there you go. No, no, PayPal did not reinstate me. They let me get my funds out. They let us all get our funds out, but none of us got reinstated. None of us got reinstated, my friend. You got bad information there. We all, and the same happened to me. They let me get my funds out, but they didn't. You know, we need to call out Ben Burgess and Jacobin. And we need to, we need to put pressure on people like Norton and people like Danny Haifong, you know, uh, about why it is that they have decided to you know, to not full on attack us, but kind of more or less stand, you know, to basically boycott us. We need to talk about that. Why are they okay with boycotting us? Um, You know, uh, and we need to, you know, go into their spaces and say, what's the deal? You know, why is it okay? You know, when, when, you know, somebody thinks basically the same thing as you, why is it okay to boycott? you know, them? Why is it okay to try and, you know, snub them with every opportunity and treat them like they're somehow the enemy? You know, you're not going to gain any credibility with the ruling class. The ruling class is going to say, oh, you support Syria, you support Ukraine, uh, or you support Russia, you support China, but, um, but you don't like Caleb. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. You're fine. It's not, it doesn't work that way. These people don't gain anything by attacking us. They gain nothing by attacking us. It's, it's purely this delusion in their head that they think they're better you know, oh, I'm better, you know, oh, I'm better. I've been on the Jimmy Dore shore mo- more often or, oh, I, I'm better. I, I, you know, oh, I, I'm more sophisticated. We got to come out about why are we not, despite whatever our differences are, why can't we just respect each other, right? You know, I mean, there's times I disagree with Jimmy Dore, but I love Jimmy Dore. He's great. You know, he's probably one of the most, the biggest voices that's putting out a progressive populist working class anti-imperialist message right now so when jimmy Dore occasionally says something i don't agree with i don't denounce him and scream from the heavens i say well that's too bad and it is right i mean tulsi gabbard you know i mean i i like tulsi gabbard i met her i think that she says a lot of really good stuff but there's been some things she said that have let me down you have to learn that if you build a coalition you have to be trying to find out what you have in common the goal should be to build an anti-imperialist block. That's what we need to do. We need to build a block of anti-imperialists. We will not do that if every difference that we have turns into the end of the world. All right, next question. Pol Pot. Um, you know, I don't like Pol Pot. 
I consider Pol Pot to have been an ally of U.S. imperialism. He attacked Vietnam on behalf of the U.S. imperialists. Um, not a good dude. Uh, ultra leftist, year zero, right? He wanted to not in, have industry, and he thought that you could have full communism in Cambodia on the basis of an agrarian economy, and he uh, you know, attacked Vietnam at the behest of the U.S. imperialists. He was aligning with the U.S. imperialists against the Soviet-aligned countries, funded by the CIA. Don't like that, dude. Not a big fan of Pol Pot. Digital currency. My understanding is that the reason that Bitcoin slumped really dramatically yesterday, um, you know, um, the reason for it was that um, that there's rumors going around about new regulations from the government that may kill Bitcoin. Um, and so based on those rumors, a lot of people pulled out of Bitcoin or sold their Bitcoins or whatever. Um, that's my understanding. So, you know, that's what it's about. But there's not, you know, I mean, that. Who knows? I mean, you know, Bitcoin is very fluid. It goes up, it goes down. It's been going down a lot lately, but then it'll go back up. But yeah, it really went down today um, or yesterday. And that slump um, is probably based on rumors of government regulations. All right. And the Australian Labor Party is going to be back into power. All right. I mean, you know, I like, you know, Kevin Rudd was supporting the Belt and Road for a while. And he was going around talking about how the Belt and Road initiative was good. And I appreciated that. It seemed like he was at least somewhat sympathetic to China, but that's long gone since the pandemic and all of that. He's not talking that way. And yeah, the, the, the Labor Party in Australia is not, they're not even really social Democrats anymore at this point. They're just a straight up, you know, they don't believe, you know, the Labor Party in Britain and, and the Australian Labor Party, they had like something like the Clause 4 that said they eventually wanted to get into socialism. They, they don't even say that anymore. Australian Labour Party is at this point, um, you know, it's just like a liberal party. I mean, they're a, a woke liberal party. I mean, it's like, you know, Joe Biden in the United States, from my understanding. But it would be good to interview uh, David Fox on that. All right, folks. Okay, I guess we're going to end here. Upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. All righty.